0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, just thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for bringing your presence and yourself to these conversations. We really do appreciate you for giving up your time and your energy to listen. So hope you are enjoying these conversations. If you do enjoy them, please go over to iTunes, write us a review. It really helps us as we expand our reach of the podcast and share these conversations. Share them on social media, send them to a friend via text or email. You are the reason why this podcast continues to grow. If there's no one listening, it really doesn't do much and doesn't leave much of an impact. So thank you all for being here, and thanks for your continued support of the podcast. If this is your first time here, welcome. A bit about me and and what I do for a living, I work as a mental performance coach and an executive coach where I get to see a diverse group of people in both the corporate and sports world. Uh, They are CEOs, they are head coaches, they are athletes, and they are executives. And I love working with humans, and I love working with people and helping them unlock their potential, and see new possibilities for where they want to go. So today's guest walks a similar path, and it's one of the reasons why we connected. Dr. Travis Heath is an associate professor of psychology at Metropolitan State University of Denver, which is actually where he also attended. Uh, He also is a licensed psychologist working in private practice in Denver, Colorado, and is co-founder of Rocky Mountain Narrative Therapy Center. And he's going to talk about narrative therapy in this conversation. It's something he's very proud of. It's something he's very passionate about. And that work focuses on including shifting from a multicultural approach to counseling to one of cultural democracy. And he really believes in the power of writing and how writing can help people shift their narrative, shift their story, and elicit emotion. So we talk about emotion in this conversation. Writing has been at the forefront of one of Travis's passions. He is actually in the process of writing a book on narrative therapy, and he really believes not just in the spoken word, but in the written word. And that's going to come across in this conversation. So Travis is a psychologist. He's a teacher. He's a writer. And he wears all these different hats, and he really believes that that makes up a lot of his identity. And he's certainly passionate about sports. That's going to come across in this conversation. Sports has had a lot to do with his upbringing and his identity. So we're going to talk a little bit about sports. But this conversation is mainly about humans, mainly about himself and how he's cultivated his own mindset and what he does intentionally to be his best, and also the world of psychology and how he... Feels about the world of psychology and why it's been a good fit for him as a career choice. He's been fortunate enough to run workshops and speak about his work in Australia, Canada, Denmark, Hong Kong, Norway, United Kingdom, and the United States of America. He's also on sabbatical right now, so he's going to talk about that experience. And he's scheduled to teach in Auckland, New Zealand in November, in Mumbai, India in January, and in Istad, Sweden in 2020. And at Travis's core, I think he's somebody who just tries to live presently and wants to live presently and likes to wander and likes to explore. So I know that will come across in this conversation. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dr. Travis Heath. Travis, really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. I follow you on Twitter, and that's how I found out about you. And in this world today, I've had a few guests. That I've just stumbled upon on Twitter. And the reason why you're so intriguing to me is because you have some basketball in your past, you have psychology in your present, and you also just seem like a highly curious person. So as right before we started recording, you said, hey, Brian, just follow your curiosity. And those three things are all passions of mine. So I'm excited to see where this goes. I don't really have an agenda. So where I'd love for you to start is to tell us a little bit about what life was like for you Growing up, your childhood, just paint the picture of who you were as a kid and and that'll give us some context for who you are today.
1: yeah, Brian, thanks for having me on the show it's great to be here um, as a kid, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado, in like a working class uh, family uh, sports were uh, sports were really everything to me as a kid like that's just all I did. Uh, it was a different time right i mean i'm almost forty years old, and so Uh, I mean, I guess there were video games and stuff, but not like today. You didn't connect online. Um, so we would just play sports all the time. And then when we get bored with traditional sports, we create our own sports. You know, we'd be playing basketball and rollerblades or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, sports were a constant companion growing up. I mean, academically, like that was fine. I did, I did well academically, but it was only like a means to play more sports. So, um, you know, going into high school, uh, You know, I played pretty much everything, but by the time I was a junior in high school, I I focused on basketball. I don't know if that was a good move or a not so good move. I I could make arguments on either side in retrospect, but basketball was always my favorite sport. I'm not sure it's what I was best at, to be honest with you, but I loved it. And I carried it into college, you know, thought I'd go to the NBA, but, um, you know, started playing a little bit in college and figured out like I'm not as good as I I thought I was, um, which I think is a realization most of us come to in sports at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, so sports were a huge, a huge part growing up, you know, my, my mom was a teacher, so education was also stressed. Um, it wasn't like, it wasn't like my parents had a ton of money, but I was going to go to college. Like that was just something that was going to happen because education was so important in my household. Uh, um, and so I, to be honest, I didn't think I'd go on beyond undergraduate, you know, like at that time, four years seemed like a really long time to spend in college. So Uh, I don't think if you would have asked, like, my friends or people in my neighborhood growing up that if I was the candidate to get a PhD, I probably wouldn't have been that person. Uh, Not because I wasn't smart or something. It's just because, um, you know, um, I I don't know. I was just into sports, and it's like education was important, but, you know, who's going to go to graduate school for eight to ten years? That's nuts, right? So, um, but, you know, in retrospect, it makes some sense because, you know, my mom was so into education, so that was a big a big part of my existence. Um, you know, and the other thing, if I could say about my childhood, and I don't know if this was just me or maybe it was a generational thing, but there was, there was like plenty of time to just go out in the world and explore, you know, like, I feel like today, kids always have to have an adult with them, you know, like wherever they go. Um, and there was just a lot of time where in the morning, in the summers, you know, my mom would be like, all right, see you later. I'll see you tonight, you know, and we'd just go out and, you know, hang out for ten to twelve hours. We'd go uh, we'd go hiking, we'd play sports, we'd do whatever. And so um, I think that was a real formative part of my development, too. Like you mentioned curiosity, which is something I hold dear, but I think some of that came from just being given the freedom to explore. And so I think that was a big part of my my upbringing as well.
0: You know, Travis, you're hitting on something that I just witnessed this past weekend. So this past weekend, I hosted a retreat uh, for ten executives that I coach. And, uh, my family has a mountain house on the same mountain as Camp David. And on the property, there's just rocks and trees and, um, you know, you can just get lost. And so one of the activities I had them do was just, Hey, just go wander. Like, you know, don't talk to anybody, just go wander. And I observed them and I was watching them and I'm watching them just like skip on the rocks and just, you know. Bounce around. And when we came back and debriefed it, one of the things that they talked about was, gosh, like I don't usually have the freedom to just wander in my day. I mean, we have phones now that tell us exactly where we should go. We have, you know, even if you don't have a watch, you have time on your phone. And a lot of them, like the exercise is supposed to be 10, 15 minutes. A lot of them came back like 20 minutes later. And I was like, you know what? Let it go. (laughs) It's like, like, uh, whatever. We'll push something else back. And that we had a whole conversation around the importance of playing and getting lost and just wandering and how that's been lost, not just with our kids, but also as adults, like we don't do that anymore. Um, We are so rigid a lot of times. And they talked about how free it felt to just wander and their create, creativity started to spark and they just were, were in touch with themselves. So I'm curious if you do anything for yourself, knowing that about your childhood to just get lost and go, and go wander.
1: Oh, gosh, yes. Um, you know, I, I've, I've often said that kind of movement sparks my mind. It sparks my heart. It sparks my soul. It gets everything moving. I have to move. Um, I didn't travel a lot growing up. We didn't really have the funds to do that. I mean, we went on little road trips and things like that. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough as I've gotten older to travel. And when I go to a new place, like the, one of the first things I do when I get settled is just go wander the city, go wander wherever I'm at without a map um, it gets me sort of just grounded in wherever I am. So yeah, I mean, I'm always walking, um, uh, you know, exploring nooks and crannies, even of like Denver, where I live, where I grew up, I know Denver very well, but I'm always just sort of wandering around, paying attention. What do I see? Uh, listening to conversations around me. So absolutely. It's a part of, I mean, I would say it's a part of basically every day that I'm out and I'm moving and I'm, even if it's a route I've taken 30 times, uh, 300 times, 3000 times, I mean, it's a little different each time if you, if you pay attention. So yeah, I I often say I get bored easy and I get restless. So maybe that's some of the tendency of of me to do that too. But yes, I've, that's definitely found its way into my adult living for sure.
0: Awesome. And take me back again to the the fam- family dynamics. You mentioned mom's a teacher. Who else yeah. was involved as far as the the family uh, yeah. dynamics go?
1: Yeah. So uh, my dad, he um, so he worked at a fire uh, department for I don't know twenty or thirty years. But he wasn't a fireman. He did like computer IT kind of stuff. But when I was really young, he was uh, self employed. So he did that all sort of out of like literally out of our basement, and so. Um, You know, I think that was a really good experience to learn from in a lot of ways. It was tough financially for a period of time, right? But he kind of had this uh, entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit about him, I guess you might say, right? And starting his own business and then eventually connecting with something much larger. Um, Yeah, so so he was around. They were both uh, really supportive of my uh, ventures as well, like in sports. And I mean this literally. I don't think my dad missed a game, any sort of event or game in my entire childhood, which is wild if you think about it. You know, I'm part of that growing up, he had flexibility because of his schedule, but, you know, he would be the one that would take me to most of my practices and literally never missed a game. Not that my mom missed a lot of games. I mean, there were very, she was there most always, but I mean, he literally was there all the time. And so I think, um, you know, that's, that's impacted how I parent as well. I have a seven-year-old and I have a just turned three-year-old, and um, the idea of being present. I think I learned that uh, from both my parents, but really from my dad. You know that um, if you're not if you're not present, sort of what's the point? You know, I could go out into the world and try and make money or do whatever every second of the day, but um, you know, there's this precious. It sounds trite to say, but it's so true. You you get it. You have kids. I mean. I always heard before I had kids, Hey, they grow up so fast. You know, I heard that, but then you have them and it's like, wow, my entire relationship with time has changed over the last seven years. And so the gift of presence, I think is a great gift that my dad uh, gave me.
0: It's so interesting. You, you bring that up because I never thought about that, which is now I definitely use my kids as sort of the barometer of where we're at. Like my, my Mm -hmm. daughter's age, my son's age and, and sort of, you do live vicariously through them in that way. Uh, And I I never really thought about that. Uh, What other values did mom and dad pass down to you? So obviously this ability to be in the present you got from dad, what other values did they pass down to you?
1: Yeah. um, I I might say, uh, you know, being a a dreamer, you you know, like they, I wanted to play in the NBA. They probably knew I wasn't going to play in the NBA. Um, But, you know, they did everything within their power to support that. And so um, and it it wasn't um, not that they were reckless in their advice or something, but it wasn't like, well, you should do this because it's more down to earth, or you should do this because there's a more clear path to an easy job or something like that. It was, you know, whatever my big dreams were, they always supported that. So the idea of like, Um, not just being a dreamer, but finding ways to help support and foster dreams. Um, I definitely got that from them. I mean, there, there is like the value of hard work, you know, I mean, they were uh, very hard workers. And so I'm sure that's followed me as well. The idea of family and the importance of family. Um, I definitely got that from them. Uh, and I think the idea of service, you know, the idea of, um, uh, serving other people from both of them. I saw them do that in a lot of different ways. And uh, I think I didn't think of this consciously as a kid or even as a young adult, but what when I look back at jobs I was considering or directions I was going in my life, it always involved service of some sort. And I, I think I definitely got that from them. So I think those are some of the key ones.
0: Did you have siblings? No. So what was it like being an only child?
1: Well, I should say it's interesting because there were a couple of um, uh, kids that were almost like my siblings. So they were next door neighbors and there was um, uh, sometimes like some challenges going on in their home. So often um, there were long stretches of time where they stayed with us, one older and one younger. Um, And I often still sort of, we look at one another as siblings, but not blood siblings. Um, so, so that was kind of an interesting dynamic. They've been around my whole life. Um, so I was an only child, but I wasn't, if that makes sense, because there were often two other kids in the home. Uh, Also, I should mention I was adopted when I was, I don't know, eight weeks old, six weeks old when I was very, very young. So my parents were all I've ever known. So that was, um, that's another interesting uh, dynamic, but yeah. So I I don't know. I kind of had the best of both worlds being like an only child, but also having like, um, almost having siblings, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and that, that dynamic I think was, was great. Um, you know, the only child part of it, uh, I think allows like a lot of room for flexibility, um, in thinking, it allows a lot of time around adults, you know, so, um, which could be, there's pros and cons to that as a kid, I suppose. But, um, You know, so if I'm the only kid in the house at that time, then I've got to, if I want to be involved in conversations, I sort of have to raise myself to the level of the adults to be taken seriously, right? And so I think that honed some of my conversational abilities and things like that. But like I said, a lot of times there were two other kids in the home. And so, um, you know, I also sort of had the experience of having siblings and going through those kind of squabbles and things as siblings do. So uh, I think my upbringing was really unique in a lot of ways.
0: Do you know your birth parents?
1: I don't. Nope.
0: And any curiosity to find out?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I've wrestled with that and thus far, and I reserve the right to change my mind, of course, but thus far I haven't. Um, you know, my, my parents have just been my parents. My dad actually died about what is it? 2019. So about six years ago. Um, you know, my mom, I think is going to turn 74 in August. Um, What I do know about my birth parents, my birth mother was 16 when she had me, birth father 18. So they were obviously uh, much younger than my adopted parents are. But thus far, I haven't had um, much of a drive to do that. I don't know if that'll change as I get older, maybe something about wanting to know uh, more specifically about your genetics or something like that. But Um, it's not, it's not like something where I've been like, oh gosh, I don't want to find out or it would be hurtful or it's more sort of like, eh, I'm, I feel good with sort of the family structure I have. And I haven't had a yearning to do that. But like I said, I reserve the right to change my mind. Like, we'll see what happens into the future.
0: You mentioned dad passing away. What was that like for you?
1: Oh gosh. I mean, it was, um. I mean, it was a long bout with cancer, uh, brain cancer. Well, as long as those bouts with glioblastoma go, like 16 months, which for glioblastoma, which is a really um, devastating form of a brain tumor, 16 months is a pretty long time. But, so, well, I'll say a couple of things. On one hand, uh, having the time to say goodbye, right, and prepare for death, I think is uh, a great gift. But in some ways it's painful because you can see the person decline right? Um, But now, six years or so removed from it, uh, it's given me so many gifts um, in terms of the work I do, right? Because I'm a psychologist and death, I often say to people, death is my business. And they look at me sort of, you know, cockeyed, like, well, what do you mean? And because people are, even if it's not a physical death, people are often coming to see me when a relationship dies, when a cycle of life dies, right? So, um, it's made me a, a much better psychologist, I think. And it's also made me a better husband and a bit better father. Now, of course, if you ask me like, well, would you rather it didn't happen? Cause I think he was 66 when he died. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, of course, but given that it did happen, um, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, brought me a lot of gifts that maybe I wouldn't have predicted in advance.
0: You mentioned, as a psychologist, that you see all these different people that might be in transition or dealing with death in other ways, not just the physical side of it. Talk a bit about your psychology background, how you got there. Um, you talked about, hey, I was into basketball. I had my eye on the prize. By the way, you made it further than I did. I thought I was going to be an NBA player in like sixth or seventh grade, and high school didn't even work out for me. So you're, you're, <laughs> I, I too was. Fortunate to grow up in a household where dreams were were not shattered, and I think it's a it's a gift that we can give to to children. However, mm-hmm. my dreams got shattered at a much younger age than yours. Um, yeah. But I'm curious for you, like when did psychology start to come into the picture, and what, when did it become an interest for you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I spent a year, and it's you know this was the '90s. Keep in mind, it was a different time. I spent a year at Gonzaga, um, you know, and thinking I was going to be a basketball star. Uh, Gonzaga, in 1998. A little different than Gonzaga in 2019, right? It was this little tiny West coast conference school. If you knew basketball, you knew John Stockton went there. That was it. Now people hear Gonzaga and it's a, I mean, now they play in this 18,000 seat arena. It's totally different, but you know, that was like really my only D one uh, opportunity and uh, the head coach, Dan Monson left um, there were six, six of us freshmen. Only one was left after the first year, which obviously, uh, Mark Few had a much better plan as you can see now, but even if Monson had stayed, I mean, the reality is I wasn't really good enough to, to play at that level. Um, and to me, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe I could have stuck around and waved a towel for five years and there's merit in that. But the way my thinking is, is like, if this isn't going to lead to something, why am I doing it? You know? And so I, I'm, I need to find what I'm going to do in life. And so I went back home to Denver. Uh, my mom was like, Look, you either got to continue in school or you got to get a job, like one or the other. I started looking at the job market. Um, without a college degree, that didn't look so good. I didn't want to be saying, Do you want fries with that for the rest of my life? I mean, that can be honorable for a period of time. Or maybe for some people, it's their life, but it wasn't for me. And so I went back to school to Metropolitan State University of Denver, which, to be honest, at the time, I didn't know if it was a four year school or a two year school. I met with an advisor during the summer. This is the summer of 99. And uh, she's like, well, what?" She's very nice. What classes do you want to register for this? And, that. and I was like, look, I just need enough classes to get my mom off my ass. Like what's a full-time load, like just sign me up. And she tries again, bless her. She was like, um, you know, well, do you want to try sociology? Do you, I mean, history, we've got all of it. I said, look. I want to waste your time. Can you just like, what's the full load of classes? And at that time I think it was like five or something. I was like, I trust you. Would you just sign me up for five classes and I'll show up in the fall. And she like, like begrudgingly reluctantly was like, okay. So you know what it's like when you're 19 or whatever, two months is like two years. So I got that off my plate. Didn't think about it. Then all of a sudden, you know, the fall rolls around and here I am in school. I have to figure out what classes I'm in. One of them is psychology, intro to psychology. Now, um, Maybe this is generational. Maybe it's just a product of where I went to school. I don't know. But psychology was not offered in high school. So I didn't even really know what psychology was. It was like a big word that started with a P, physiology, psychology. I don't know what it is. But I have this great professor, Dr. Linda Lockwood, who um, she she has a great wit. She's um, incredibly sharp and just so smart. And I remember I started out sitting like, I don't know, it's like a 120 seat lecture hall, right? And I'm sitting like three fourths of the way back. But I notice myself as the class is going, I'm like uh, uh, progressively moving forward, it's like almost one row a week. Uh, it's like I'm, it's a gravitational pull to her class. And you know, I start doing well on the exams and um, you know, she starts, taking an interest in me and says like, well, have you ever thought about psychology? I'm like, No, never thought about psychology. And I, at first I thought the question was preposterous, but by the end of the class, you know, I'd gotten an A on all the exams, but more importantly, like I was reading the textbook for fun, which is not me. I mean, you, this might sort of sound bad, but usually I would get good grades by, and I'd barely read. You know, I just, I have, I had a knack for efficiency, knowing what I needed to know and just regurgitating that on an exam and getting an a um but in this class i was actually interested in the content and i'm reading and i'm like wow i've thought about this stuff since i was a kid i just thought i was a weirdo that thought about weird things but actually there's like whole programs of study on this so i was sort of amazed by all of that um what if I, what if this advisor hadn't have signed me up for Linda Lockwood's class? I mean, again, it sounds trite to say, well, I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you today, Brian, but like, maybe I wouldn't be. I mean, that class really changed my life. And so, you know, then it was like, well, okay, I'm going to be a psychologist, but I didn't quite have that. Like, I didn't have an understanding of what that meant. (laughs) Like like I was, you know, another mentor I came across, Dr. Harvey Milkman, he was like, hey, you should go to graduate school. And I remember telling him, no, nah, I'm not going to go to graduate school. I'm just going to be a psychologist. And he's like this very kind man, you know, and he's sort of patient with me. And after like three or four months of him telling me, hey, you should go to grad school and me going, no, nah, I'm going to be a psychologist. He was like, look, you, you have to go to grad school if you want to be a psychologist. And I remember having this moment of like, oh, man, like I'm going to graduate school. This is, to be honest with you, no one in my home had ever done that or family. So this was foreign. I didn't know. I didn't have any um, way of understanding what the process was. Right. And so, but fortunately I had mentors and man mentors are important to a process of apprenticing over the years. I can't think of anything more valuable. So Harvey Milkman, Linda Lockwood, other people from where I went to undergrad, uh, really, went to bat for me and helped me get into grad school. So I first, I did a terminal master's degree in clinical psychology at Pepperdine university with an emphasis in couples and family therapy. I'd started coaching high school basketball, my last two years of undergrad. And I felt, I loved the basketball course, but I found myself in like when some of the boys on the team would be in conflict with their parents or with teachers I found that I liked sitting down with them and helping sort through that conflict almost more than I liked the coaching. And so I got the sense that the, this idea of therapy would, would be something that I enjoyed. And uh, my instincts were right. I, I loved it at Pepperdine. But this thing happened at Pepperdine where I started um, uh, teaching some courses as a TA. And I love teaching. And again, uh, my naivete shows up again because I had mentors that were like, hey, you should consider being like a college professor. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've thought about it, you know, and of course they go, well, but if you want to do that full time, you have to get a PhD. And I remember thinking, like, oh, gosh, because I had looked at PhDs, but, you know, at the time, my 22 year old self saw six to eight years and I was like, that's an eternity. I can't do that now. Two years of master's degree. Hey, even if I'm not good at it or whatever, I could do that. But, you know, I wanted to teach so badly that I applied to PhD programs and, you know, eventually got in. And and so um, the rest is history, as they say, right?
0: Hey, Travis, I want to tap into that idea of two years compared to six years because like I do an exercise with my clients where I have them vision out a year and they can really do that. But if we were to vision out five years, they get really nervous, anxious, tense around that. Why do you think that is that when it comes to like a year or two years, we can sort of see that vision. But when we go further and further out, uh, a lot of people are are almost scared to, to go out. Why do you think that is?
1: See, it's interesting because like for me, um, I was so scared at that time. I think some of that was youth. And um, of course it's uncertainty, but it was like the uncertainty of youth for me. Like if you asked me to go five or 10 years out now, I don't know how accurate my predictions would be, but I could offer you some predictions. If you ask my 22-year-old self that, nah, like, (laughs) I mean, it it was, some of it's temporal, in my opinion. I think, I think the other thing is that um, sometimes when, I've noticed this with people, this is um, anecdotal, of course, I don't have any empirical evidence to support this idea, but It's almost like if we see to me it's exciting if I predict something because I might live into it Like I don't have any problem predicting where I might go But I think for some people it almost creates like expectations It's like this idea of like, oh gosh, what if I put the bar too high or i've done whatever and Then I have to live up to it. Um, and, and and it's like the burden of those expectations Which for me, I see that a little differently now at 39 years old. I see that as sort of like it creates opportunity. It, it create I can live into the direction I want to go. And I've seen that happen a bunch in my life, especially as I've gotten older where I have this idea of something I want to do or uh, a part of ide- an identity I want to assume. And I sort of dream it, um, you know, imagine it in my mind and then I do live into it. So I, I've seen sort of the, the opposite with myself, but boy, you're right. With just folks I work with or people at large in the world. Um, I've definitely seen this sort of fear of projecting into the future and to be fair, I mean, you know, the future is a scary thing. I think, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that it's the great unknown.
0: Yeah. And I've, I've been working on myself trying to fall in love with the unknown. I think one of the things that I would assume, and this is an assumption you and I both love about sports is the unknown factor. Like the, mm-hmm. for me, the fact that you just don't know if the Toronto Raptors are going to win the NBA finals, mm-hmm. like there's excitement around that. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. And so I continuously try to live for the unknown. I think that's part of life. I want to kick it back over to you and actually see like you're 50, you're 50 years old, you know, what's, what's going on for you 10, 11 years from now? Like what's your vision for yourself as you think about where you're at when you're, when you're 50?
1: Yeah. So um, I've always loved writing and I'm right now I'm in the process of, uh, I'm on academic sabbatical. Well, I guess technically it starts in the fall, but it's the summer. So I'm on academic sabbatical. And the reason why I was granted that sabbatical was to write a book. And I've always loved writing since I was a kid, but, um, and I've written articles and things like that, but a book is a massive project. Now, to be fair, I'm not writing the whole thing. I'm gathering work from contributors, right. Uh, which is a good way to go. In my opinion, you get lots of voices in there, but Gosh, by 50, I hope that I've done more writing. Now, I don't know if that it always means publishing books or whatever, but um, I'm just a big believer in the spoken word as well as the written word, right? And and so I get a lot of spoken word in my meetings with uh, people who consult me, right, in therapy or whatever, and, and, as, and as a teacher, and I think that's great. But the one thing about the spoken word, like those words are ephemeral, they, they Um, they, I'm not saying they don't move people, but they disappear. Right. How often do we listen to someone speak and we go, Oh, this person said that, but I forgot to write it down. I kind of have the spirit of it, but I, but when you write it down, words become immortalized. So writing is just, I, I don't know. I think, and I know we have research on people reading less or they'll only read a little bit, but I think if you, uh, if anyone has the ability to write in a way that moves people, that in, invites people into whatever the stories are that they're telling, I think people will absolutely still read. Maybe you have a smaller window to get their attention and bring them in. but So I would hope at age 50 I've written a lot more. I also, the idea of apprenticing. I mean, I've had um, some great apprentices, and I'd like to continue, especially as I get older, to apprentice other people. in the practice of narrative therapy, which is the type of therapy I practice, people who want to be educators, people who just want to be helpers and serve. Um, I feel like apprenticing is such a good use of my time. And I get some of that as a teacher, but as a like a college professor, a lot of it's super formalized in the classroom. And that's, that's good, there's a place for that. But when I say apprenticing, I mean more sort of one-on-one sorts of things, really investing time and spirit into people. So I hope I've done a lot more of that. Um, I'm not so interested in like the, acad- well, it's not just academic, like titles and those kinds of uh, pre-constructed milestones aren't that interesting to me. So, you know, like I got tenure a few years back. I'm sure I'll sit for full professor in a bit. Um, I mean, all that would be nice to have, but in terms of like my vision for myself, it's more in uh, the practices I'll be engaged in, uh, what I'll be doing, Um the person I'll, I'll I'll be being if that makes sense um, as opposed to like, like I find when I adhere to other people's milestones or or um, you know like the path I'm supposed to be going if I get hooked up on that that's when I get drained of all my energy and that's not good but if I'm if I'm sending more sort of experiential uh, milestones where I'm participating in something or there's a practice of something. That engages me. Like, I notice a lot of my academic friends and colleagues, it's like, oh, gosh, I've got to write this thing, and it's horrible. And I'm always thinking, like, well, pick something you want to write, then. You, you know, like, um, this book that I'm interacting with, it's great. Like, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's not all puppies and candy canes. I mean, it's challenging and all, but, but – generally i have a positive spirit i'm investing into it because it's a it's a project of my own sort of passion that i've thought about for a long time and i have some you know the person who apprenticed me is a co-author on this like there's a generational connection there that's amazing and so like to me it's it's not a burden it's 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 awesome but i don't think about it as like oh i've got to write this thing to keep my job or to get the next milestone it's like I'm going to do this thing because I'm passionate about it. I love it. I'm invested in it.
0: What, what's the book about?
1: Yeah. So the type of therapy I do is called narrative uh, therapy. And so over the last four or five years, um, we've come into a different way of teaching this type of therapy. And it's sort of a weird therapy to begin with. I put air quotes are no good on a podcast, but weird um, you know, therapy, weird approach to therapy. But what we're doing is uh, we're teach what we're doing. We're calling teaching it backwards. So instead of um, like usually the way therapies are taught is you hit students with a bunch of theory. Um, not that theory is bad. In fact, theory really interests me. But the work as a therapist, it's a work of a of practice. And so if you can't translate the theory into practice, the theory is not very helpful. And I often see students um, that are becoming therapists really struggling because they'll get an A on all the exams, they know the theory, but then they're sitting across from another human being and they're like, but I don't know what to do with them. And so we teach it backwards through story. Um, So there's a special kind of, um, well special, who am I to judge this special, but um, maybe different kind of writing called autoethnography where we as therapists actually write ourselves into the tale. So you would what we would do is we would um, create these stories and you would read that first. We wouldn't give you any theory, any jargon, you would just read the story. Now, this is much more than a transcript. Um, this is, if I'm, doing, if I'm doing it well, if I'm doing this style of writing well, uh, you know what I'm feeling moment to moment, you know what I'm thinking, you know what my insecurities are, you know that I'm thinking that, oh, I'm gonna go this way for this reason and then sometimes it's brilliant and sometimes it explodes <laughs> Um, you know and so what it does what we've noticed that it does and we've written a few papers on this already is that the practice gets under people's skin when they're moved by it and they can experience it right as opposed to take it in as like an academic discourse and then uh, what we do is we have them like name parts of the practice that they're seeing in the story but they're not allowed to use any therapy jargon they have to make up their own I mean they don't have to necessarily make up words but They can't use technical therapeutic jargon. And we find when they start naming the practices themselves that they're seeing, it makes more sense to them and they're able to locate it in their own practice. Now, maybe at the very end of this, we'll tie it to theory a little bit or um, tell them some of the more technical narrative therapy terms. Uh, So it, it really, a big part of this is crafting the stories, right? And it's not hard to know what happened because I lived it. So I have transcripts of what happened. But the challenging part of the writing and the fun part to me is I have to make it come alive, right? I have to tell people what I was thinking. Sometimes I give them stories of what was happening in between meetings. I'm sure this is true for you, Brian. You know, you get you get visited by people in your heart and mind between meetings, right? They pop into your consciousness something, you know, and sometimes it might be a bit anxious, like you're worried, oh, what am I gonna do with this person? And other times there's a lot of energy and you have a lot of ideas or whatever it is. I want people to get inside of that and be able to see what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, see ways in which I'm being tortured sometimes by this process, see ways in which I feel alive. And I think this more accurately then represents what it's like to do this job because this job isn't a very, it's not strictly an academic intellectual endeavor, right? There's a lot of emotion and feeling and being that goes into it that somehow when we write about therapy gets lost. So I hope this gives you some idea of uh, what we're trying to do in the book.
0: There's a lot going on for me right now. Number one is that stories need to elicit emotion if they're going to stick. So great stories involve great feeling and great emotion. And as you were talking earlier, you said something about, a lot of times we forget what people say when they're talking, but if we can feel it, we can remember how we felt. I think Maya Angelou had that great quote of people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so emotion is one piece that I'm just fascinated by. And then the other piece is like I, for years in sports psychology would work people's mind and we would always stay in the mind and we would not go into the heart yeah. and, or even the gut as well. Yep. Yep. And um, I actually did another program at, at Georgetown and they were like, Hey, you got to work the, the heart. Like you're so cognitive and in sports. And we're seeing it pop up now in men. Like I think men generally this is massive generalization, 50% of the world or whatever, but we work the head uh, and we often neglect the heart and, yep. So I think when you're seeing, especially the basketball players like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan talk about their feelings and their emotion, it's an interesting space that we're entering. And I think men for years have been taught to just work the mind and not tap into the heart. I saw this crazy stat in an article I read last night that 70% of all suicides are white males. Mm -hmm. Um, And then most of those are sort of midlife white males. Um, and you know, it's just like an interesting stat to, to see when you think about privilege and you think about these words, it's like, Whoa, there are a lot of people. We see it with our military, right? Like these guys are cognitive warriors. They are mentally tough. How many Navy SEALs are doing trainings now and teaching people how to be mentally tough. And there's post-traumatic stress and there's all this other issues that come up if we don't address the heart. And then the last thing I'll say is in, in sports, we have always been told, like, stay emotionally even, like, don't get too high, don't get too low. And we've trained that and and espoused that on our clients, like, hey, you know, you don't want to become emotional um, and And it's just an interesting space and I'm curious where sports psychology will go in the future because I think you can play with emotion without being emotional. I think you can, the more you can feel the emotion and be aware of it and notice it without necessarily um, letting the emotion turn into being emotional. I think that's a massive um, advantage for a performer to have. But it's scary because once you open up that vulnerability, you potentially could become emotional and that could negatively impact uh, your performance. So I want to just riff with you on emotion because it sounds like you're, you're really going into it with, when it comes to narrative uh, therapy and when it comes to writing. You have to play with emotion. So I would love to get your thoughts as you think about emotion and as it relates to performance and psychology and, and how you think about all that.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate your words. Um, you know, I, I've consulted not so much anymore since, especially since I've had kids, but, uh, you know, consulted with the NBA and for NBA teams for, for a while. Um, and I, I don't know if I've said it exactly like you've said it, but, um, I don't know if I could articulate it as nicely as you did, but, uh, being, a you know, harnessing emotion without becoming emotional. That's like, that's a really interesting idea to me. To me, when I work with athletes, it's like, look, you didn't, you didn't start playing sports as an intellectual decision. <laughs> like you, you, your heart led you to sports. It was, uh, it's highly emotional, right. For most, for most athletes. I mean, maybe if you're seven foot seven or something, um, you know, I'm thinking of, well, I won't name names, but you know, you, you, you can, you can think of, uh, ba- basketball, it's height. It could be other, um, sort of, uh, natural skill sets or body types and other sports, but most, most athletes, it starts, that's why they're, right? And we use phrases like you got to have heart, right? (laughs) But yet, um, in some ways, our profession, psychology tries to take the heart or historically has tried to take the heart out of things. To me, it's what are the, where are the potentials of where the heart might take you, right? It might be able to take you places that the head can't. And I'm not advocating, like, not advocating that cognition uh, is bad, but I could argue, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts about this, that cognition could be a bigger enemy to performance than emotion. Emotion harnessed um, in a way that fits for the person could be, you know, like, I don't know, full disclosure, I don't know Kawhi Leonard, but obviously he's at the forefront of our sports consciousness right now. He's a really interesting personality. The way he uh, could ride a wave of emotion or harness emotion could be very different than the way that uh, Kobe Bryant did or the way that uh, Shaquille O'Neal did or the way that Nikola Jokic here in Denver does. Like I, I don't, I'm, I would stay away from the prescriptive, like here's how you harness emotion. I think it's different for each person. How, what, what's the preferred relationship they have with emotion, but to take it out of the equation, I agree with you. It's dangerous. And I think it risks, um, getting in the way of performance, just as much as if we um, uh, sort of are, are, are to ignore it or to go strictly cognitive.
0: Well, there's also something interesting. I think we assume that we can see the emotion and mm-hmm. from the outside looking in, so Draymond Green plays with emotion because we're seeing it, yes. uh, we're, we're yes. noticing it, we're observing it, so it's obvious. Yes. But to your point, I don't know what Kawhi's insides are like. I don't know what he's feeling in that moment, just like I don't know what he's thinking. And while body language certainly matters, and Amy Cuddy's work on body language has been well documented. And and, and look, body language is something to notice and observe and be aware of, but it doesn't tell the whole story. I can't tell you how many times I've had a client sit next to me and I read something and I bring it up to them and they say, no, actually, that's not really what I'm feeling or that's not really what I'm thinking. And so while it's important to notice and observe, it's also important to to point out that emotion can, feelings can be something that, might be more under, underneath, might be uh, hidden. And I was thinking about this also. I was watching last night. There was nothing really to watch on TV, and I was trying to go to bed. I probably should have been reading instead of watching TV, but that's <laughs> my, own, my own issues. And I flipped over to NBA TV, and they had something on the Dream Team on. And I've seen the documentary a bunch. And you know, you're know, you watching Charles Barkley and Magic Johnson and Jordan and all these guys, but they talk about Barkley elbowing a player um, for no reason from Angola and just elbowing them, and how, you know, it was like a black eye on the team. Uh, but and so you're watching Barkley, who I think from an emotion standpoint, you know, played with emotion. And that was part of his unfair advantage being six foot five and being a power mm-hmm. forward at a mm-hmm. time when guys were six ten and, you know, much less multidimensional than he was. And then I'm watching magic who also had emotion. Like they kept yeah. zooming to magic on the bench, just going like towel waving, bring in this joy and this passion to the game. And I love what you said earlier. I've interviewed players at the NBA combine. And a lot of times you'll ask them like, why did you start playing ball? And they'll say, I just loved it. Like I love, plan. Uh, and then they'll say like, well, I was good at it, or maybe I wasn't good at it and I wanted to get better and their story will go on and on. But yeah, why do we do anything? There is an emotional component to it. It's not always cognitive. And I love what you said also about a lot of times the cognition can get in the way of actually the execution side of it. Um, so talk about being a, a teacher, uh, being a, a therapist, being a writer, you're wearing a lot of different hats. Do one of those hats fit you better than another? Um, And how do you manage those different hats in in your role and in your capacity?
1: Um, It's interesting because to me, they all feel like uh, components of the same hat. Like if I'm not doing, if I'm not involved in therapy, if I'm not teaching, apprenticing in some capacity, if I'm not writing, I don't feel whole. Like all of these feel like a part of my identity. Um, Like even... Even in the summer, now don't get me wrong, I like getting away from the grading. (laughs) There are parts of teaching that I don't like, but even just two, three months in the summer where I'm not in the classroom teaching, I notice a difference in just sort of how I feel in the world, and so, uh, or even taking a two week break from doing therapy, I'm like eager to get back and do it. I mean, we all need breaks and all that and time to recharge, I agree with that, but all of these are a central part of my identity and I couldn't imagine, not having one of them. Now maybe, um, you know, maybe my identity will expand and I'll add other things as we go along, but to me, they're complementary. And um, now to the question of how do you manage all of those? It's a really good question. I'm not sure I have an answer. Um, Maybe I'll give you the answer I'm wrestling with, with myself, which is, look, like when it comes to writing, some days I may write for 20 minutes. That might be all I get because I'm trying to potty train my youngest. I'm running my oldest off to swimming lessons or doing whatever. Then I've got clients and that whatever else is going on. But I found that like, Hey, even if I get 20 minutes of writing in and I don't have to be in this perfect Zen space, you know, I'm feeling creative. No, just start writing. Just like I've got this time. I'm going to write for 20 minutes. And then some days I might write for three hours. It just presents itself that way. But life is busy. And I've found that, um, sometimes, you know, like, look, you and I, if we're working with a client, we have that time booked off, we're going to work with them for an hour or two hours, or whatever it is, right? But then there are other things that might be passions, or, or just important parts of our jobs that we have to squeeze in. And I used to think that to write, I needed to be in this perfect creative space. And that was a was not a helpful story, because I found if I just start writing, it'll it'll come right. And even if it's for 20 minutes. So I think that's one way I'm managing. it. Another way is that, to get away from all of that altogether. Right. So to make sure I have time with my wife, time with my kids, um, exercise is crucial for me. Um, making sure that I'm exercising and staying of course physically fit, but boy, um, that's tied to my emotional and uh, mental fitness as well. So that's been key sleeping and with young kids that can be hard, but trying to find enough time to, you know, at least get seven hours of sleep whenever possible. Um, you know, I think all of those things are a recipe. Um, having, having community, right? Having colleagues that I can uh, speak with, have conversations with that, in a way that they'll understand because they do something similar. I think that that's important. All of these are my attempt to um, wear all of these different hats simultaneously, right? I don't, I don't, have, it, I don't have it down. I don't have it uh, it's not perfect. But um, this is sort of the formula that I've started to construct to be able to survive.
0: But Travis, I'm trying to, to understand. So I would imagine if you're lecturing in front of a classroom, that's going to be different than writing in, mm-hmm. at your desk, right? And, and writing at your desk is going to be different than having a, a therapy session. Mm-hmm. And so for me, at least, I know what I need to be right now for you is different. Then when I'm going to coach, like, my next client is an executive. Uh, yep. That's going to be a different dynamic. And then I've got a college athlete. That's going to be a different dynamic. And then I've got a speaking gig tomorrow with a company that I'm, you know, I, I have to be on for that, and that's going to yep. be different. And yep. so they require different tempos, different energy, um, different headspaces. spaces. Uh, so th- that part is really what I'm curious is how do you mm. – First of all, is there one that you really feel the most alive in? And then is there anything that you do to transition into each of them to make sure that you're where you need to be?
1: I feel alive in different ways in each one. There are times I like to just, writing is often a great solitary activity and I like a decent amount of time alone with my own thoughts so I'm not contaminated by what others are thinking. I like that. But I also very much love facilitating conversations Right. Whether it be as a teacher or a speaker or whatever. So I'm not sure I feel more alive. I just feel alive in different ways. Now the transition part, you know, like um, I'm thinking of what I do. Um, Part of this is because I'm cheap and I don't want to pay for parking. So I acknowledge that. But I uh, on the university campus and we don't get free parking because it's an urban campus. Not a lot of parking. I park 15 or 20 minutes away and I walk um, in in the morning. And I notice when I walk in, I'm sort of centering uh, myself, getting prepared to be a professor, right? Everything that comes along with that, lecturing, teaching, but also, you know, serving students in my office, right? With whatever conundrums they have. Then I see clients in the evening. So I have that 15 to 20 minute walk back to my car. And I notice myself transitioning into a different space, a much more intimate space, right? When you're thinking about a one-on-one conversation, uh, the level of intimacy connection that comes with that is different than when I'm connecting to hundreds of students. And so I noticed that I, I sort of that walk to my car. Um, it's all, it's not like I'm transitioning to a different person. It's not that, uh, abrupt of a shift, but I'm coming into this space of, okay, I'm going to be sitting with one person in a much more deep way. And so there again, we ta- we started with this idea of like moving and walking like there's just something about having that 15 or 20 minutes to shift. Like if I had to teach a class and then in five minutes walk to my academic office, let's say I was seeing someone there as a therapist, I don't think I'd be at my best. I need that. I need that time to sort of uh, get into the headspace. And it's not like I'm meditating or do it. Sometimes I'm listening to music or a podcast. Sometimes I'm listening to nothing. I'm just walking and sort of paying attention to what's going on uh, in the world around me. But I need that transitional time to get where where i want to go
0: you mentioned that dad had an entrepreneurial spirit um Mm -hmm. and i'm just thinking about you you said you're 39 and you're sort of at this prime age uh career-wise you're entering it's interesting because when i work with athletes the prime is like you know mid-20s uh maybe late 20s and then in the corporate world you see it start to occur in the 40s and early 50s and so you're about to enter that that sort of realm. And at the same time that you're entering that realm, you've got a PhD, you've got all this experience working in, in psychology. And so you've got this resume, for lack of a better word, that is, is really well built out. And, and we're literally entering this time now where every major league baseball team pretty much has a sports psychologist. Yeah. The NFL just this last year said they're going to come out and, and want to make sure that every team has somebody that they can go see. The NBA Players Association is doing all kinds of stuff for their guys. Um, and, and, and so psychology in sports is more accepted today than it's ever been. And as I said, you've got this entrepreneurial dad, you are, you're in academia, but you're also writing a book. You just came from the Aspen Ideas Festival. You are also seeing clients at night. So I'm saying all of that to paint this picture, to ask Mm -hmm. what is, why not leave academia behind, Mm -hmm. just put your shingle up and start working. I see you've got like, Broncos jerseys over one shoulder, uh, Denver Broncos fans parking uh, license plate over the other shoulder. Like it's clear, sports is a part of your being and your identity. And you've got the psychology background. I'm just curious what's the draw to stay in academia as opposed to going all in on being an entrepreneur and going into private practice?
1: Man, that's a great question. For one thing, I teach at the university where I did my undergrad at Metro State University, so there's a very strong connection there. Metro State is super diverse in every sense of the word. I mean, I don't just mean racially and ethnically diverse, but diverse in terms of socioeconomic status, age. I mean, I had a 73-year-old and a 19-year-old in a class last semester, and they became like study buddies. So to be honest with you, if I was at a more traditional school, I think that would be really hard for me. Um, but I'm in a place where um, the diversity is so strong that it's hard for me to imagine leaving. I would also say that I'm in a department where I have a lot of autonomy, you know. I have a a great chair and like if I was in a a more, it, it seems like I caught a lot of breaks in terms of the culture that I'm in in my department. If I, some of the stories I hear about other like undergrad psych departments, I'm not sure I could exist there very long. But part of the reason Brian why I, why I can exist in academia is because I have such a rich life outside of it. I'm doing so many other things, and and granted, they they are also influencing what I bring to academia. But I couldn't be one of those folks who does it five days a week, 60 hours. I, I have to be. I get bored easy. I have to be doing other things. And the university a lot. The university I'm at now allows me a lot of flexibility. So I think I kind of have the best of both worlds. I have the. I mean, I'm. Uh, gosh. Granted, I'm on sabbatical now, but even when I'm not, I mean, um, you know, I'm traveling out of the country at least three or four times a year. It'll probably be more like five or six where I'm on sabbatical over the next six months. And so that kind of flexibility is great. Now, could I imagine a day where, you know, I sort of um, transition out of academia and just do these other things? Yeah, that could happen. You know, you were talking about like looking ahead at age 50 or whatever. I mean, maybe that's one of the things that's in store. Um, this is my first, you know, real go at writing a book. I mean, how much am I going to love that? I mean, I'm in the early stages of it. I, so who knows? I mean, I could see myself transitioning there, but as it stands now, I think a lot of the pull to academia is just the place that I'm at and not so much academia itself.
0: Got it. And I noticed as you lifted your arm earlier, there was some tattoos, Yeah and so i'm curious they look pretty intentional and so yeah. tell me about your tattoos and and what the meaning is of of those tattoos
1: yeah so i I've, yeah, I've got i've got one on my arm that says uh, right here well no one can see it of course so let me explain very bad podcast etiquette there so on my right forearm i have a tattoo that says oppression can only survive through silence um, that's i think that's the tattoo i've had longest like I got it way back when you weren't supposed to have tattoos, you know, Um, when it was like a, it's funny, man, because now I always tell people like people look at my tattoos for ideas, but when I first got uh, many of them, people were looking at me like I was on work release or something like tattoos were sort of assumed to be synonymous with either like old army vets or criminals or something. Right. So it's, it's amazing how tattoos uh, have shifted in the sort of zeitgeist of our culture. But Oppression can only survive through silence. I was doing my master's work in Los Angeles. It's like 2002-ish. And um, I saw a lot of that work as really being sort of social justice. I hate that phrase now because it's so watered down because everyone uses it. But for efficiency, I'll say sort of social justice kind of work because I was working in South Los Angeles with a lot of uh, communities that were underserved and a lot of marginalized people. And I looked back on some of those experiences and there were many times where I felt like now I'm 22, 23 years old at the time, keep in mind, but where I thought I should have spoke up, spoke, I needed to voice something and I didn't, you know, because I thought, well, you know, what might be the consequences of doing that? Or, or would I get in trouble um, in some way with my graduate program or my supervisor or whatever? And after having a few of those experiences, I put the oppression can only survive through silence on my right forearm because that's at least in the Western world, that's the arm we usually shake hands with and I can see it. And it reminds me that when I need to speak up, speak up, right? That, that if the only way that we can fight oppression is if we raise our voices. So that's where that one came from. And then on, on my right wrist, um, on the underside of my right wrist, I have one that says live free. And then on where you would see a watch on the top side of my right wrist, I have something that says live now. Um, I, I like both of those ideas, the live now part, rather than looking at what time it is, of course, because I like to fitness track. Now I have an Apple uh, watch on my other, like you were saying earlier, we're always privy to the time and I am disappointed. I wish there was a way I could make the uh, time go away on the watch cause I just want it for the fitness tracking. But nevertheless, The live now, the idea was that I look down and what time it is, is it's always now, right? It doesn't really matter what time it is because now is really all we have. And then the live free part, I think we've talked about some of this in our conversation today, but just this idea of dreaming and, you know, um, um, going for something, right? Don't let the constraints of what society says you should or shouldn't be doing get in the way of that, right? Live with a certain freedom. And, you know, then there's also just historical, um, ancestral ideas of slavery and other things like, um, freedom, sort of a loaded word in certain ways, but, uh, and freedom can mean different things for different people, right? Not everyone has the same amount of freedom, but whatever amount of freedom we find in the world to sort of live into that. So yeah, that, that's what that one's about. And then I have one more on my, the underside of my left wrist, um, which is a West African symbol for love and happiness and marriage. And my uh, wife, she has the, the same tattoo so that gives you some of the lowdown on my ink awesome
0: well you said live into that multiple times during this conversation today and it sounds like you are living into what you want to do and how you want to show up and why you're showing up so Uh, It's been great chatting with you today. Uh, Let people know where they can find out about the work that you're doing, the book. Uh, I know you're on Twitter because that's, as I said earlier, how I found you. So give people your Twitter handle. But if they want to follow you and, and learn more about what you're up to, where can they do that?
1: Yeah. So my Twitter handle is Dr. Travis Heath. So Dr. Travis Heath, Dr. Travis Heath. Uh, And that's the only social media I have, actually, so, um, and then I would say email is probably the best way to connect with me, um, and I'm happy if people are listening and feel some sort of connection or, you know, want to speak further, that's probably a good way to at least get the conversation going. And my email is my last name, Heath, first initial T, so heatht at msudenver.edu. So that's probably a good way to get it going. I don't have like, I'm behind in that, man. I don't have a website. I don't have business cards. Like everything I do is just word of mouth. Like I don't have a good, I wish I had like a good, uh, well, in some ways I do in some ways I don't, but right now in this moment, I wish I could go, go to this website or do this. But, um, I would say just, uh, you know, if, if you think we might engage in conversation and find it helpful, just reach out to me or if you're interested in reading any of the papers I've written or something like that, reach out to me. I'm happy to send them your way.
0: Awesome. Well, when your book comes out, I'm sure you'll get the website in order so that people can, can find out where to get the book. And if not, uh, we'll have another conversation and we'll make sure that we get that set up for you. Um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. Travis, Dr. Heath. Uh, this has been awesome. It's, it's great to put a face to the Twitter handle and uh, hopefully we can have more conversation in the future. And I know you've got to go drop your, uh, your daughter off at, at swim lessons. So hopefully she crushes her swim lessons today. And um, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. It was great. And I hope we can connect again. And um, hey, keep doing this. I mean, I think this is fantastic. I can't wait to start listening to the backlog of people you've spoken with. And I think there's a lot we can learn from these kinds of conversations. So keep on keeping on, man. Thanks, Travis. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. And after having a few of those experiences, I put the oppression can only survive through silence on my right forearm because that's, at least in the Western world, that's the arm we usually shake hands with. And I can see it and it reminds me that when I need to speak up, speak up, right? That, that if that the only way that we can fight oppression is if we raise our voices. So that's where that one came from. And then on, on my right wrist, Um, on the underside of my right wrist, I have one that says live free. And then on where you would see a watch on the top side of my right wrist, I have something that says live now.